Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. My name is Jane Eyre, dear reader, and this is the story of how I came to take a position at Trump Field Hall, home of Mr. Trumpchester in the year 1781. Good day, Mr. Trumpchester. My name is Jane. I'm the new governess. Welcome to Trump Field Hall. As you can see, it's huge. It's the top estate in England. You've heard of Downton Abbey? I've been there. It's a toilet. I wouldn't spend one night in that toilet. Very well. Perhaps I should meet... Lord and Lady Grantham are inbred morons, and their daughter Mary is a slut. End of story. Quite so. It's just that I think I should meet the... You're very unattractive. Has anyone ever told you that? I mean, you're ugly. I'd probably have to hang a pork chop around your neck to get the dog to play with you. Oh, dear. Nobody has ever spoken to me in such a... I own many clocks. I'm concerned that you'll stop them. On the other hand, with that big honker of a nose, you'd make a great sundial. Mr. Trumpchester, you see much and you speak your mind. I like that about you. I trust you will not take it amiss when I apprise you of the fact that one of the local foxes has apparently escaped from the hunt and taken it upon himself to die a wretched, mangy, flea-bitten death upon your head. That's my hair. I like my hair. And so you do. I think it's time I met the children. There are no children here. They're all grown up. They're Eurotrash. I'm proud of them. Then why do you require a governess? I didn't know what they were. All the top families have them. Me, I've got a wife in the attic. She's crazy. She bites. She's got blood coming out of her wherever. She goes to the bathroom in a way I find disgusting. But looking at you right now, all of a sudden she seems like a runway model. Perhaps we will come to appreciate one another better. And perhaps I will someday come to love you following a complete removal of my prefrontal cortex. But for now, consider this show about ugliness. And now, dear reader, the man who thought Wuthering Heights was about a talking cat, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, the Heathcliff thing kind of screwed me up here a little bit. So, yes, you know, we do have this presidential candidate. Perhaps you have heard of him. Uh, and he takes it upon himself to uh, insult people, uh, like a lot, about their looks. And he calls them ugly. He said it about Carly Fiorina. He's uh, said it about Ariana Huffington. He said it, I mean, and this isn't a show about that. And it's not even the reason we're doing a show about ugliness. Um, I forget why we decided to do a show about ugliness. It's a great idea. Uh, and we'll talk about him later in the show anyway. We're not going to talk about him now. But it does get you thinking about that, that, that first of all, it really is a tripwire that people are, on the one hand, hesitant to kick. You say something like that. You know, you really have gone to um, a mostly forbidden place, except that people do it all the time, too. Ugliness is a thing that that people talk about uh, as if it even could be defined and understood. So maybe that's where we'll begin today. Uh, Before I even introduce our guest to you, um, let's see what would happen if you asked, I don't know, Umberto Eco to tell you some other words for ugliness. 
If we examine the synonyms of ugly, we find repellent, horrible, horrendous, disgusting, disagreeable, grotesque, abominable, repulsive, odious, indecent, fool, dirty, obscene, repugnant, frightening, abject, monstrous, horrid, horrifying, unpleasant, terrible, terrifying, frightful, nightmarish, revolting, sickening, fetid, fearsome, ignoble, ungainly, displeasing, tiresome, offensive, deformed, disfigured, and so on. So there is a, a variety, a very rich phenomenology. Yes, a very rich phenomenology. I just like hearing him say all those words in his accent. But anyway, uh, let me introduce our guest to you. Gretchen Henderson uh, joins us. She's an award-winning writer and professor uh, at Georgetown University. She's the author of Ugliness, A Cultural History. Tony Rayton D'Antonio is a psychotherapist and a professor at the State University of New York Empire State College. She's the author of Ugly as Sin, The Truth About How We Look and Finding Freedom from Self-Hatred. So, um, Gretchen Henderson, I'm going to start with you. We we talk about ugliness as though it were a thing that people could agree about. We'll even talk, uh, as we go along here, about studies in which the consequences of being ugly or being fabulously attractive uh, play out in other different ways. But that means that we, we think we can identify those things. So does, does ugliness have a definition? Is there a way we can talk about what that word means? I guess I would start by saying it's not a thing as so much as a modifier. Mm -hmm. So really anything that um, gets the word ugly latched upon it then becomes uglified. Uh, So it's got a very complicated history. The Umberto Eco um, kind of litany of of adjectives um, starts to to traverse some of that colorful terrain. But but we really see it going back to antiquity. Um, But I think that's the, the... the idea of it not having a definition is an important place to start. It changes very much um, depending on its cultural context. Right. Uh, Voltaire uh, said, ask a toad what beauty is. True beauty. <laughs> he will tell you that it consists of his mate with her two fine round eyes protruding from her small head, her broad, flat throat, yes. her yellow belly, her brown back. In other words, another toad is beautiful to a toad. So a lot of it is who's doing the looking. Yes, very much the eye of the beholder. Um, so, so in kind of looking to trace the history, um, which I did recently in, in my book, it was basically trying to actually see how we as humans have this trend of, of first identifying the anomalous other, the kind of ugly who is not me. But then there are these trends where all of a sudden the, the individual gets grouped. Um, so an ugly feature, um, say the Jewish nose, then ends up becoming a kind of marker that can end up being a target of discrimination. We see it, you know, on the kind of extreme version, this ends up th- fueling theories of eugenics. Um, but then there's a, even a more complicated look of, of ugly senses beyond the visual. There are all kinds of ways that we react. We turn away from from ugliness. Um, so how do we actually take it upon ourselves to become the eye of the beholder and see what those consequences are? Right. So uh, Tony Rayton D'Antonio, I mean, another thing that we know that about the shifting definition of ugly versus beauty is that um, it, it not only varies quite a bit culturally, uh, but it varies chronologically. Uh, There certainly was a time in human evolution when somebody who looked kind of like the Venus of Willendorf uh, was considered beautiful in a way that probably she wouldn't today. Correct. Um, Our definitions of ugliness have evolved uh, mightily over time with the advent of what is uh, now so politely referred to as um, beauty technology or cosmetic technology 
which um, really means going under the knife at great personal expense and altering yourself. Um, my favorite um, icon of all of history was the v Venus of Willendorf, um, and she was a little tiny, um, what we would now call quite hideous, um, according to today's standards, uh, sculpture of fertility. She was a fertility goddess. And nowadays, she would be eligible to what is called a mommy makeover. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> women go to plastic surgeons in droves to get their breasts lift, the, you know, a full uh, lipo and tummy tuck, etc. The Venus of Willendorf has sagging breasts, protruding vulva, big flabby stomach and hips. She looks a lot like me. I think she's awesome. <laughs> and uh, she would be considered grotesque. And in today's 2016 society, she would stay at home and delete herself from pictures. Back in history, she was considered the most beautiful thing that you could be. So, you know, Gretchen Henderson, uh, you know, Tony raises an interesting point at the beginning of her answer, too, in particular. I mean, she's sort of suggesting, and you're sort of suggesting it, too, that um, ugly is a way of either reinforcing certain norms that you want to reinforce for other reasons or selling people something. I mean, you can't sell them cosmetic surgery if they don't think there's something wrong with them. So it, it has um, a mercenary uh, utility. Uh, it has, as you suggested, various other kinds of um, socio-normative utility. You can brand somebody as the other uh, and, and you can kind of denormalize them uh, and you can associate them with certain physical features that are considered ugly. But, you know, if you go back further than that, Gretchen, do I mean, I know Plato tries to define beauty versus ugliness. I mean, do you ever get to a point where there's a commonly agreed definition that, I, I don't know, asymmetry is ugly? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because when you look back to antiquity, and I'm thinking of someone like Aristotle and his generation of animals, looks at almost sets up a hierarchical caste. So a woman is a deformed male. So already there is a kind of ugliness implied as you go down this this species train of sorts, um, and. And the aesthetics and the politics get very deeply tangled. And it's not a kind of upward slope to progress. The it, ugliness kind of follows a bit of a sign curve. Um, and if you get to something like the 18th century where classicism comes back, um, you have someone like Hogarth, who's this really important artist. But his analysis of beauty, he actually talks about it in terms of asymmetric lines, curve lines, serpentine lines. So he really um, basically pushes his theory in line so much that um, a, a deformed um, member of parliament, a, a man named William Hay, who was hunchbacked, um, he actually aligned his his essay, his memoir on deformity, where he talks about what it's like to be both a social insider and outsider. Um, he says that that beauty consists in curved lines. He thinks that he should he should retitle his um, his memoir. So there's this slippery slope that starts to to play around in the 18th century. Um, and then you start in the 19th and 20th century having more appropriations of ugliness. Um, and you see that more in art, but also um, trying to, and this goes back to what Tony was saying too, there's so much charge to ugly. I mean, it's the ultimate slur in cyberbullying. So um, I'm thinking even of a, an anti-cyberbullying site has 
um, basically taken ugly as part of its URL, and they've they've retagged it as unique, gifted, lovable you. So there's kind of or ugly Betty, um, Shrek the musical. The tagline is bringing ugly back. There's there's this recognition that it wields so much negative charge that if someone can take ownership of the term. Maybe there's a way of of deflecting some of that or having a larger conversation, you know, and I mean also thinking of someone like Robert Hogue's um, recent memoir called Ugly, um, the Australian writer. You know, Tony, uh, Gretchen, uh, as she she correctly points out, it's a sling, it's an arrow, you know, it's the thing that's used to hurt uh, people. But it's also used in a different way to defame people, right? That throughout history, for centuries and centuries, there's this notion that um, ugliness goes uh, goes along with some kind of moral deformity, that um, if you're ugly, you're you're Richard III, you're going to be a villain, that maybe there's even this cycle that because you were ugly, you were reviled, because you were reviled, you started to hate humanity, that turns you into a villain, so now there's this whole other reason not to like you. Absolutely. I mean, to Gretchen's point earlier, she talked about, um, you know, how uh, something like the Jewish, the so-called Jewish nose, was seen as a sign of ugliness. Um, I had originally started to write my book, uh, you know, as a, I I don't know, as a much more simplistic uh, piece of work than it evolved to be. Um, when I started to research the origins of ugliness, what became clear to me is that it's biological. You know, if, if you're looking for a mate, somebody who could reproduce, who provide, um, you know, viable, healthy children, you want somebody with symmetrical features and a 0.7 waist-to-hip ratio, etc. That makes for a better biological partner, somebody who's been well-fed, has had plenty of meat, perhaps has clear skin, etc. Over time, these concepts became co-opted by institutions uh, like our religious ones who use um, beauty and purity as, as indicators of moral goodness. So that's why I used Ugly as Sin as the title of my book, because when people are seen as sinful, evil, the bad guys, the enemy, they are always depicted, for instance, in political cartooning, as hideous with bad noses or wrinkles or stooped posture, all those things that centuries back would have been indicators of biological inferiority, disease, or illness, the things that Umberto Eco was talking about. It has evolved over time. And, and in my own work, I started to use the word ugly and apply it to myself. And the shock that I got from people was, was remarkable. One of the things I said to, to one of your producers was, if you want to be called beautiful, tell somebody that you're ugly. Mm-hmm. That's when they'll tell you, oh, no, no, no. But, you know, when they assess you, if you walk into the room, they'll immediately be looking at, you know, your choice of garments, the size of your hips. You know, do you have wrinkles? Has she had work done? It's, it's all morphed over time with the kind of media and beauty technologies that we have in place now, from something that was biological in origin to something that's more financial, political, uh, et cetera. 
Yeah, and we're going to come to financial in the second segment. Uh, Tony, I want to just stay with you for a second here because it also strikes me that in some ways for thousands of years, we've kind of talked out of both sides of our mouths about this subject. Uh, On the one hand, Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments, are full of admonitions not to judge people on their appearance uh, in Samuel 1, 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And and that's, that's like all over the Bible. But I assume one of the reasons it's all over the Bible is because the rest of the time, men and women, they're both judging other people on their appearances that we, we've known for thousands of years. That's not the right way to do it. But we never stop doing it. No, we never do stop doing it. And I was just um, preparing in my mind for our conversation today. And I was thinking, okay, during, you know, the arrival of a child, the baby is born, and out comes the child. If you don't know the gender, again, we have technologies that will tell us what the baby is now before the baby is here. But what's the first thing they say? It's a beautiful little girl. It's a handsome little boy. That's the arrival. You arrive with the labels of your attractiveness and your gender. Right. Although and it's very uh, binary, and we know we're not supposed to do it, but we do it. We do it, yeah. It seems like it's sort of in the wiring. So, Gretchen, we have also this tremendous kind of ethnology about this. We have all of these stories, and some of the stories are stories about the ugly duckling, which is essentially, you know, it's kind of back to Voltaire and the toad. It's that, you know, I mean, ducks uh, 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 think that a swan is ugly. So there's sort of that one. There are these transformative stories uh, in which – you know, there's sort of the loathly lady, wife of bath story, you know, that, that by getting past one's initial sense that someone is ugly, that we change them, they, we transform them, and they become beautiful uh, again. And then there is that really sort of gut bucket notion that ugly is evil, that, you know, the Quasimodo is kind of the outlier for the most part. You know, really ugly people have um, ugly thoughts. So I mean, it feels like there isn't real, a real consistent message coming out of our folklore. Or is there? No, I think I think it really ends up being very culturally determined, and it changes in a variety of contexts. You know, if you even if you look at something like the Japanese concept of wabi sabi, which has all of the um, the larger aura of of beauty uh, as far as kind of its cultural signification, but the characteristics that it carries with it are more things about the withered, the weathered, the crooked, the aged, the impermanent, um, and and that would be something you know that you'd usually if you didn't necessarily know if you were going to try to parse that into beautiful or ugly, it would probably end up under the ugly category. Um, so so a lot of it really does end up, um, I think these transformation tales end up showing a lot of that slipperiness, you know, that that um, desire to be able to um, think, think of things as easily determined as good, evil, and these binary categories, beautiful, ugly. Um, and they do carry also, I mean, even something like the, the loathly lady and a lot of the the more gender specific stories go back to Eve. You know, even there, something beautiful and seductive can hide something that has this evil message. Um, but I think that desire of the transformation is is what is the desired object, what is the disgusting object. Um, there are these these two different sides of the of the coin that become um, part of the story. So, you know, Tony, when you talk about that sort of initial reaction to the baby, then it does seem like it's part of our wiring anyway to begin telling stories about beauty. Um, 
but I, I'm wondering how how soon we get wired that way. Is it um, is it culture or is it really kind of in, in our in our DNA? And and I know you've in exploring um, children's literature. Well, I mean the original 1928 Velveteen Rabbit, you know, w- winds up with this message. That's the message we want to convey. And generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out. You get loose in the joints and very shabby. But those things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. And I know that you've explored children's entertainment uh, and, and written your own series of books with their own messages about this. Is it possible to change the minds of children about something that's so built into the way we think? Yes. Oh, good, good. <laughs> it's the simple answer. Um, I just, I'm, oh my gosh, I just, I feel like I'm among my peeps talking about this subject when it's such a taboo subject in most places. Um, I, I just, um, as much as I, I, I want to speak to the Velveteen Rabbit, which I have written extensively about, the, the story of the ugly duckling is a classic because the ugly duckling is a what-do-you-think-of-me-now story, mm-hmm. which is a classic in modern media. Once that ugly duckling becomes a swan, which is you know, a metaphor for a beautiful woman or beautiful person, then everyone, all the ducks should now feel ashamed for having judged because they now know that the swan is the superior entity, supposedly, in the world of fowl. Um, but what if you're just a duck? What if you grow up and you're just a duck? You can still be beautiful. And that is what I tried to teach my daughters as they were growing up. I, I said to them, uh, you know, congratulations, you happen to be beautiful, but your best parts are invisible. So if everyone focuses on your outside, they're missing the best parts. When it comes to the Velveteen Rabbit and, and the things that Gretchen was referring to uh, in, in Wabi Sabi, there, there is even a, uh, and may, maybe Gretchen, you know this, there's, there's another thing that the Japanese do with broken objects where they yeah. fill the cracks with gold to emphasize the broken places and make them even more valuable than the original object. That's no, what abs- happens when you love somebody. They become more valuable. And over time, I mean, I'm, I'm married to someone who has lost a lot of his hair. I don't see that. I see the person. I adore him. He is beautiful to me. And I don't think of his hair loss, but others might. Mm-hmm. We're actually yeah, Josh. I look, I look at that shiny dome, and and it's and it's a gorgeous thing. Josh Nalea, the producer of this show, is also working on a segment of a show about baldness for a few weeks from now. So we'll call you back about that. Oh, that'd Gr- be awesome, Gretchen. I'm going to let you react to that, and then we're going to take a break and come back with uh, our next segment. Oh, sure. No, I was just going to say, absolutely. Um, And even going back to the original idea of the Venus, I think, and even looking at her lineage, uh, we see a lot of this come up in complicated ways. And even when you were just talking, Tony, about the um, filling of the brokenness, I was reminded of the Irish performance artist, Mary Duffy, who imitates the Venus de Milo. And she, um, she was born without arms. And so the physical bodies are exactly the same as this um, sculpture that we keep on a pedestal. And, um, and so in imitating and kind of confronting viewers with why, why is this shape of a body that would be considered broken in a social context, in an aesthetic context, be revered? And what's, what's the disconnect? Um, and again, it, it holds up a view to the eye of the beholder. 
All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We'll be back with more of Gretchen, more of Tony. You'll meet uh, Daniel Hammermesh, our final guest, after this. I learned the truth at 17 That love was meant for beauty queens In high school girls with clear skin smiles Who married young and then retired all about looks looks will determine everything you know you, you want people to judge it by the character you, you know the, what you feel inside but nobody cares people all they care about is your looks I'm sorry if you look good you're gonna have a good life if you look bad ooh, you better work on it that's right the uglier you are the smarter you better be for every 10 pounds you are overweight you better pick up a book or you better get two books and get a computer while you're at it that, of course, is Chris Rock uh, setting up uh, this part of the discussion. So with us, Gretchen Henderson. Uh, her book is Ugliness, A Cultural History. Tony Ritten D'Antonio. Her book is Ugly as Sin, The Truth About How We Look and Finding Freedom from Self-Hatred. Right now, we're going to talk to uh, Daniel Hammermesh. Uh, he is a Sue Kellum Professor Emeritus at the Foundation of Economics at the University of Texas at Austin. And he is the author of Beauty Pays, Why Attractive People Are More Successful. So, um, Daniel Hammermesh, Chris Rock is really kind of right, right? I don't know if you notice how right he is, but if if you're ugly, you actually have to work harder to get the same thing. And that actually is sort of empirically demonstrated? Absolutely. In terms of success in getting a job or getting earnings, yeah, you have to be better along some other dimension if you're sort of lacking in the dimension of looks. Although, how... How can that be empirically measured? I mean, I've just had this conversation with Tony and Gretchen uh, about the shifting definitions of, of ugliness and attractiveness and how culturally predetermined it is. And, and, you know, it just seems as though it's a pretty slippery target. So how do you c- create a study, a- an experiment in which the consequences of somebody's looks can be measured in terms of uh, the value of those looks themselves? Well, there are two different ways in which it's been done. The first, and this has been now done in a number of countries, including the U.S., Canada, Germany, Britain, Australia, uh, at the end of some interviews in a national random sample where you get information on people's earnings, all their demographics, the interviewer is asked to rate the looks of the person being interviewed. And the main point is in that case, people tend to agree. You ask a colleague of yours to walk down the street with you and make little notes of how good-looking various people you pass are. And you'll agree, not perfectly, but very, very much. There are a lot of commonalities in how he view looks. The other way is just getting pictures of a large sample of people and having individuals, I've had four, six, ten, rate the pictures. And there, too, they tend to rate them the same way. So it's pretty easy to get measures of beauty. In fact, if there weren't easy, if we didn't have this commonality, then we wouldn't be talking about this. There would be no effect of beauty in any outcomes. <laughs> well, that is true. So uh, I'm going to mention some things, and you can tell me uh, which ones are affected by your looks. Your school grades, getting hired for a job, getting raises, performance reviews, being promoted, average salary, being allowed to get away with doing a bad job. In which of those categories does an ugly person suffer a disadvantage? I'd say all of the above. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, actually. <laughs> Answer E on the multiple choice test. So that, I mean, that just seems incredibly unfair, particularly that last one, being allowed to get away with doing a bad job. So even after you get hired uh, because of your great looks or don't get hired because of your bad looks, there's an additional penalty. The person who's in the job is allowed to do a bad job if he or she is prettier than the, the, the person further down the looks ladder. 
I wouldn't say a bad job, but he need or she need do a less superior job than a person who looks challenged. Wow. So um, this raises all kinds of questions about how public policy might respond to a situation like that. And Daniel, I know you have some ideas about this. But Gretchen, before we go to Daniel's ideas, one way that public policy has responded in the past is to, in fact, pass laws against people with physical imperfections, right? There have been anti-ugly laws in America. Yeah, ugly laws. Right, exactly. I mean, this was a term that was actually coined by disability rights activists in the 70s. Um, the original laws were titled more kind of unsightly bigger ordinances. But you see them in the late 19th century into the 20th, um, and they're on the books even into the 1970s. They're obviously very hard to enforce. And when it went, you know, a case of a homeless man in Omaha um, went to a judge in the 1970s. He said, "Kind of, what's what's the standard of ugliness? Who determines um, who's ugly and who's not?" But you look at some of those early codes, and they were around the country. And one, you know, in Chicago, it was basically that if anyone who is diseased, deformed, or otherwise maimed um, cannot expose themselves to public view at risk of incurring a fine. So you see that um, wish to kind of inoculate society visually. Um, but it's it's tied up with a lot of issues around class, um, immigration, uh, disability, race, gender, a number of things kind of become part of that. And Gretchen, I mean, it's sort of interesting, too, that, that that sort of don't come out of the house law, because there's this whole other strain of looking at ugly people, right? I mean, the elephant man, that that's the true story of someone who is a, in under certain and very degrading situations, ugliness gets exhibited because people want to look at it for some reason. Absolutely. I mean, the 19th century sees that real emergence of the freak show, even though that, I mean, even back to antiquity, you have things like monster markets. But this idea of um, of kind of the exhibitionist, which again is, is putting on, on the pedestal in a very uncomfortable way, the object of, of desire spectated, um, but also discussed. And so kind of what um, that fine line is um, of who's allowed to be in view and who's removed from view um, and who becomes part of that um, the laughing stock. Um, Daniel, uh, one of the things that I think is hard for people to absorb is the notion that not only are you the attractive person, the beneficiary uh, of a system which penalizes the ugly um, person at the level of kind of perception and then things that are given to you, but that in some instances, attractive people perform better than ugly people, particularly even at the level of athletics, which you think would have nothing to do with looks. There's some indication that Tom Brady, you know, he's sort of he's sort of typical of a phenomenon that attractive people are actually statistically slightly better athletes? Well, it's a very tough question. In the case of somebody catching a ball as like a tight end or a wide receiver, I wouldn't think so. But remember, a quarterback in a very real sense is a manager. And if we like good looks and good looks can inspire us, then in a very real sense, Tom Brady does better partly because he's more productive as a quarterback because of his looks. I don't think that's very typical. But, I mean, take another example, attorneys arguing cases. If I'm a good-looking attorney and I can convince judges or juries because of my looks to side with my client, then in a sense I'm being productive. But my productivity is a result of the underlying inherent bias in favor of good looks and against bad looks. So it's still discrimination, albeit the immediate beneficiaries are the employers of the people who are good-looking. So, um, Daniel, that that would there's a sort of Rawlsian argument that you could make here. Then that you know it, it seems 
as wrong to live with the maintenance of this uneven playing field as it is wrong to live with other kinds of uneven playing fields uh, that maybe it should be redressed in some way. And this is something you've explored in your book, right? Could there ever be kind of a version of the ADA that applied simply to to people's ugliness or, or beauty? I don't see why there couldn't be if you wanted to do it. I mean, obviously, people might say, well, who wants to say they're ugly in order to get some compensation? But I think if the compensation were sufficiently large, large, and remember, the penalty for bad looks is over a lifetime is several hundred thousand dollars of earnings, I think people would sign up. As to how we could determine who's ugly, as I said, uh, there's a substantial agreement not just in the United States, but if you look at foreign countries, we would look at those people the same way they do. I'm not sure I want to do this. I think I'm not sure I want to spend our resources chasing after equity in the market for looks. They're more important things in my view. But as to its being workable, I have no doubt that it could be done. All right. So, Tony, I think among all of us, uh, you are uh, the most utopian dreamer. You're our John Lennon. You're the one who wants to imagine a better world. Um, so as you're listening to Daniel talk about this, um, obviously, first of all, we should one of the tripwires we haven't really kicked in this whole show is the degree to which women are held to different kinds of beauty standards than men. I think men, and maybe we'll explore this a little bit in the third and final segment, men are really kind of allowed to. I mean, Walton Goggins was just featured in a promo there. He's a very successful actor. By many measures, he would be considered ugly, but he also might be considered also very handsome, where women live with a different set of standards. So maybe, Tony, there's also a legal argument that women who are constantly being judged by these somewhat narrow aesthetic standards about appearance also deserve some kind of relief. Uh, Tony, you're still there? No, oh, she might not be there right now. All right. So um, so I'll go to you on that one, Daniel. I mean, that that's the separate argument, too, right? That That women in particular bear certain burdens of appearances being rated. Well, let's be very careful on that. There have now been a number of studies showing that, at least in terms of earnings, being a bad-looking guy has as big or bigger a percentage effect on earnings, negative, than it does for women. I think the real issue there is how our perceptions of women's and men's looks differ as they age. Uh, we don't mark down men's looks very much as they get older. It's a fact I'm very thankful for at age 72. But the decline in how we rate women's looks as they get older, especially past 50, is very, very sharp. So I think the main difference is the age-related factor of how we judge looks. It's also the case that I've shown that women are – good looks make you equally happy. Bad looks make you equally sad, male or female. But in women's cases, it's really resulting from the fact that just they feel badly about themselves that they're bad looking. It's not because it causes any objective decline in anything. It's just bad feeling. For men, it's much more if you're bad looking, you just don't make as much money. Um, and, you know, Gretchen, uh, recently there was, I think, a sharp exchange between Carrie Fisher and uh, some people on social media talking about how whether or not Princess Leia had aged well. And, and it does seem like it, it is maybe time for women to uh, to start talking back on the question that Daniel's talking about, that they're judged more ferociously the more that they age. No, that's interesting. I hadn't heard about the Carrie Fisher. Um, the Yeah, I think basically there are these larger questions, you know, of, of everybody kind of 
owning into the situation um, and, and just t- kind of taking ownership for, for the, the fact that we're human. I mean, I think really ugliness is what makes us human. Um, it, it very much, it's part of this aesthetic conversation. Um, there's now, I'm thinking of like an uh, ugly society or the preservation of ugly animals or something like that that is, is um, now Scientific American, some other articles have, um, have followed this where when, as we're looking at biodiversity issues, if we just talk about the importance of the polar bear, we might wipe out a whole bunch of other animals just based on their aesthetics that are integrally as part of this chain. Um, so, so it's a it's a larger question, um, you know, not necessarily giving in to uh, a particular idea of, of how the body should look as it ages. But I mean, there were different cultures who revered age at, at various times. So it's not to say that this couldn't happen again. Um, you know, it's, uh, Daniel, the point that you made before, I just uh, had a moment to consider it, too. The the idea that men, uh, separating the, out the age question, that men do pay um, strong economic penalties um, for for not having good looks or get huge benefits for having good looks. And I think one of the interesting things about that is that, I mean, I think I'm guessing anyway, maybe once again, I'm being, I'm overgeneralizing, but I'm guessing that men are less attuned to this. In other words, women have perforce and, and unfairly grown up uh, alongside an industry that's constantly telling them how they should look, how they can look better, what they can do to look better, what they can buy to put on to make them look better. And it's not as though that doesn't exist for men, but it doesn't exist in the same proportions. And I'm wondering whether men go through life kind of oblivious to the fact that n- not only do they not look as good as they could, but that it's playing out in the way that you describe in the marketplace. Well, I imagine that people are somewhat oblivious to how it works in the marketplace. And yet, remember, the majority of employers, those who decide on who gets hired and who gets raises, are in fact men. So whether they're conscious about it or, as is more likely, unconscious do this subconsciously, they are paying a heck of a lot of attention to the looks of the people whom they hire or consider hiring. So what would you tell somebody, Dan? We're going to wrap up this segment. I know you have to go anyway. Daniel Hammermesh, uh, Sue Killen Professor Emeritus at the Foundation for Economics at the University of Texas at Austin, um, author of Beauty Pays, Why Attractive People Are More Successful. I mean, do you sort of think people going into the job place or trying to survive in the job place, I mean, would you advocate counseling them about this, having them know this? No, what I'd advocate is that they should realize this occurs and try to make the most of all the advantages they do have. If they have a dynamic personality, stress that. If they're really intelligent, work on that. I mean, there's so many other things that affect how well you do, and one should play to one's strengths. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to come back with more of Gretchen and more of Tony. Thanks so much to Daniel. Uh, We'll take a break. We'll come back. Beauty is subjective and is the product of ever-shifting cultural attitudes, many of which are conditioned by unseen socioeconomic factors. That, of course, is a direct quote from Sir Mix-a-Lot. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Rachel McAdams. 
for show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff dancing to Baby Got Back, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, what shocks us these days? And now, back to Colin. It's the bubble. He is a doctor who doesn't know the Heimlich maneuver. He can't play tennis, he can't cook. He's as bad at sex as I am, but he has no idea. That is the danger of being super handsome. When you're in the bubble, nobody ever tells you the truth. For years, I thought I spoke excellent French. All right, sort of a carryover from our conversation with Daniel Hammermesh. That's, of course, from 30 Rock, uh, when uh, Liz Lemon is dating a character played by John Hamm, who actually thinks he's really good at all kinds of things that he's not good at because he's handsome. Uh, He's living uh, in a bubble. So uh, we're coming back to our conversation with Gretchen Henderson. Her book is Ugliness, A Cultural History. Uh, And Tony Ritten D'Antonio, author of Ugly Ugly as Sin, The Truth About How We Look and Finding Freedom from Self-Hatred. So there is sort of something we haven't really quite talked about, although I did bring it up with Daniel, who actually sort of seemed not that open to this idea. But it it does seem to me, and actually I can even fix the moment in time where I realized this. Um, As a young man, I was watching on screen the movie Terms of Endearment. Uh, And there's a scene in which uh, Shirley MacLaine and Jack Nicholson, uh, who are both older, older characters, are about to have sex for the first time. And you're watching Jack Nicholson undress himself. And he's like this aging astronaut gone to seed and I think he's unzipping a zip up sweatshirt and as it kind of parts it parts across this big beer belly and you I was sitting I was sitting there watching it and thinking wow he's sort of allowed to be sexually viable and kind of attractive even though he's got this big old beer belly you know and it just isn't a comparable thing for women for the most part you know that there's there are all kinds of decisions that are made about the female aesthetic that aren't made the same way about men that Kathy Bates wasn't a allowed to, to play the role she played on Broadway uh, in Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune. Uh, it was given to Michelle Pfeiffer because they had to make a movie with Michelle Pfeiffer in it. The movie doesn't make any sense with Michelle Pfeiffer in it, but that doesn't matter. Um, and so um, Tony Rayton D'Antonio, I, tell me I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the, the, it's easier to push uh, women into the category of ugly than it is with men. Men have more room, I think, to operate within a category of what can be considered attractive. And I hear Tony. Okay, Gretchen, you're going to have to have to answer that question. Then, is there some kind of double standard at work here? I mean, there are definitely. You see women cropping up in a variety of different points of of the ugly history. I mean, even going back to the Aristotle reference that I mentioned earlier, or even the Eve reference, you know, pulled from Adam's rib. So the idea of woman is always derivative. So the ideal would be the male. But um, but it does get really complicated. And I think sometimes when, um, even even today, I saw an inside higher ed, they said, and this goes back to a little bit what Daniel was talking about, how more attractive women receive higher grades than um, less attractive women. And it's it's less clear about um, about how men fare on that um, scale. So I think there there definitely is, and, and there are a number of histories that kind of do look at uh, how gender plays a part in this ugly conversation. But again, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be about all of humanity as well. 
So now we do have to talk about Donald Trump. So Donald Trump's been doing this thing that, for the most part, in public life, you kind of don't do. I mean, not if you're running for president anyway, um, although there is a precedent for that, and that, that is that in 1998, John McCain uh, made an especially heartless joke about the young daughter uh, of President, then young daughter of uh, President Clinton, Chelsea. Uh, I won't even repeat the joke, but the premise of the joke was that, that, that Chelsea Clinton was very ugly, and he used that word, ugly, in the joke. And it, it really caused him trouble. And, and he ultimately wound up um, writing a very long and apologetic, uh, you might even say groveling for forgiveness letter uh, to President Clinton uh, that was described as abject, contrite, and profuse. So there's that sort of was the norm, right? That if you did something like that, if you made a joke about particularly a very young girl and said that she was ugly, that you had done something really horrible uh, and you were either going to have to apologize it or apologize for it or live as a pariah. But, you know, in this campaign, you do have Trump. He's basically said Carly Fiorina was too ugly to be president. Uh, he's made fun of Rand Paul's appearance. He said he, hadn't, he said he hadn't made fun of Rand Paul's appearance, for, but there was plenty for him to work with. I think that's how, right. how he put it. Uh, with uh, Arianna Huffington, he tweeted that she's unattractive both inside and out. I fully understand why her former husband left her for a man. He made a good decision. I mean, Trump is speaking in the language of our schoolyards. If somebody was a bully and they weren't very imaginative and they just wanted to hurt you somehow they could either punch you or tell you that you were ugly that was those are the two simple ways to hurt somebody so what's going on now that he doesn't seem to pay any price for saying this stuff you know, it's actually I'm I'm confounded by it as well because it also it's it's targeting not only kind of the the candidates and what's happening with the political rhetoric in the election, but also in how he's speaking of different population. I mean, even how with the Syrian refugee crisis and and how basically all Muslims should be not allowed into the country or should be you know I mean there's so many different points that he's made that are almost um, outlandish in the way that they, they basically talk about an entire group as ugly or in similar terms. Um, so I, I have no answer as far as how it's been able to get as far as it goes. But you see this happening with the way he speaks about immigrants um, in, in many different ways, about other women candidates, male candidates, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So um, so it is, it's, it's turning a lot of the rhetoric upside down. We've seen that to some degree with um, with earlier elections, but not, I think, to the extent that it's gone with this one. So, Tony Rayton D'Antonio, one of the ways that you've tried to turn the rhetoric upside down is to embrace it. Um, you uh, you talked about this at the beginning of the show, but I, I wanted you to um, elaborate a little bit. You, you decided to self-identify as ugly. T- tell us what you did. Uh, my effort was to detoxify the word, um, to take the power out of it. Um, similar to the way the the Black is Beautiful movement um, made black not a bad thing to be. Um, I, I wanted to address of, you know, the cheap, easy shot of calling somebody ugly. When you know nothing about somebody, you can wound them by calling them ugly, fat, stupid, or crazy. Those are the big, big books, big uh, concepts. And I had often thought I would write you know, a series of books, each just called those things. Um, Ugliness is the easiest way to break somebody's heart, and there's no way to get back at them. You can't defend it comfortably and easily. Most of us adhere to that you-don't-call-somebody-ugly standard in public, but Mr. Trump does not. He is playing into that schoolyard rage and hatefulness 
that a lot of us have on surface. What we, you know, what people in my business in the mental health uh, industry call the, you know, the otherizing of somebody or the deviant member. These are the people who speak the things that we dare not say out loud. So you can watch in the debates the other candidates struggling mightily. Do I say that he's ugly? Who the heck is he to tell me that I'm hideous? Look at him. But they don't because it's not polite. He doesn't care about politeness. And he is touching, you know, a deep emotional cord in the people who just want to say mean things and they know they're not supposed to. I wonder, Gretchen, if some of this also has to do, is really about resources. You know, we talked uh, at the very beginning, uh, Tony talked about the, the Venus of Willendorf being kind of symbolic of a woman who has enough resources to stay very well nourished and healthy and robust and radiant and, and store some fat on her body. And it seems as though Trump's message in a way now is, you know, if I, I have enough money, I don't really have to, I, I can sort of buy attractiveness. You know, I can, uh, there was a joke made on Saturday Night Live where the woman pretending to be Trump's wife, uh, Cecily Strong, was talking about Mark Zuckerberg giving his money away. And she said, if he doesn't have any money, how will he keep his wife? Um, and and that's, that's almost the thing that Trump is saying, right? I have enough money so that I, I can make sure I always have very attractive people around me. Um, and I guess the implication also about money these days is if you have enough money, you can fix whatever you think is wrong with your appearance, too. I mean, money and, and ugliness or attractiveness seem linked somehow. I definitely think so. And also this conversation about the rhetoric is is deeply tied to the, the origin of the word. I mean, that's something we haven't talked talked about, but the etymology of ugliness actually means to be feared or dreaded. So when we are slinging this word around or when we're watching um, other people flinging it around, there there is the idea that it's also carrying the fear or dread and then all the subconnotations, whether it's ridicule on the one hand or ostracism on the other, um, discriminations of various sorts. But, but right, there are various shields that people can, with resources, can build up to deflect that. Um, and cosmetic surgery, I mean, it is very disturbing the kind of resources. I think a, a you know, statistic back from 2005, I think, that I looked at looked at something like $12 billion um, Americans spend on cosmetic surgery, which is, you know, more than the GDP of something like 100 nations. And so when we think about um, where these resources could be otherwise allocated, it asks these larger questions. It's not just about the surface reading of the word, but what are those various other connotations that that come with it that is very much part of this the, the rhetoric that we're talking about. All right, Gretchen Henderson, we're going to have to stop the conversation there, although the whole idea about ugliness being feared, that goes back to our myths too, right? Medusa, she's one of the Gorgons. She's so ugly she can turn you to stone. And you do need a shield, a shield that reflects her back to herself. All right, we have to stop there. Great show produced by Josh Nilea, and thanks very much to all of our guests, Tony Rayton, Antonio, Gretchen Henderson, Daniel Hammermish. We'll be back tomorrow. And you're the reason our kids are ugly, little darling. Well, the looks say everything, but I love you just the same. Hey, Greg. Yeah, Kion? Yo, Mama's so ugly. <sighs> Please, no. That when she looks in the mirror? Ugh. <sighs> She sees a reflection of herself, which is you know, basically the only purpose that mirrors serve.